Well, I invite you, just double check, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can find this in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 62, so you could follow along there. And it's also printed in your bulletin as well. If you're visiting to GBC or you're um, newer among us, one of the things that can be helpful to know is that we usually do consecutive expository preaching. And that means that we usually work through the book of the Bible and we walk through the passages as they come to us. And as we resume our study of Exodus that we left off with a little over a year ago, um, The reality is we've come to some pretty tricky passages as we come to Exodus chapter 21 and following. That could be an understatement, we could say, but I'll leave it at that. Um, the, The Lord is giving his people laws for them to understand as they seek to dwell with him now as this newly forming people uh, out of Egypt and in the wilderness there around Sinai. And so at first, when we hear this text, we may be confused. Some of us may be even put off by the way this passage sounds to our ears. Um, But I'm confident that as we study it together, we will have a greater view of God And in particular, with our text this morning, a greater understanding of his care for the vulnerable. So that's what we'll be looking at today. So let me read our passage, and then we'll walk through it together and see what the Lord has for us as we consider his word. Hear God's word in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door of the door po- or doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So far the reading of God's word, and it is given for our good. And now let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us as we consider this this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning acutely aware of our own weakness and inability. We ask that you would help us as we look to your word, that we would hear it through your Holy Spirit, that he would help us to understand your heart as we consider this text. For some of us who are offended by this, we pray that you would meet us in that. For those of us who are intrigued, 
Will you lead us to your truth? And for those who really don't care, will you stir our hearts to fullness of faith? We think of those this morning who are experiencing joy, and we pray you would meet them there. We think of those who are weighed down in sorrow, those who are zealous and those who are apathetic. We ask your help by your Spirit's power that you would help us to see the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider our passage this morning, you'll find there's an outline in your bulletin and it has no points to it. I do actually have points that we'll go through. And for those of you who like that, I can, I can give you those up front. First, we'll consider the context of these laws. Secondly, the content of these laws. And then third, the heart of these laws. So context, content, and heart uh, as we consider this passage together. First, let's think about the context of these laws. I remember when I began ninth grade, I was really excited that we were going to be reading Romeo and Juliet. I'd heard about that story. I'd seen it in some cartoony versions, and although it's a pretty tragic story, I don't know why I was really excited about it, but I I think to finally get to hear from the source until I found out that Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter, and we started reading through that, and I had no idea how to understand the way Shakespeare wrote. Even though I was excited, I still had to learn some tools to be able to appreciate the way that story came to me. And even though the Bible is God's word and it is inspired and inerrant, it doesn't mean that it's easy to understand necessarily. And it also doesn't mean that all portions of it are equally clear to us. And so we need tools to understand it as we come to the text. And so in this first point of the context of these laws, what I really want to do is unpack three tools that we keep in mind as we come to a passage like this. The first tool is an awareness of our own present context. We have to come to this with an awareness of where we are, how we hear things. And awareness of our present context with a passage like this Um, means that we are going to hear terms like slaves and buying and selling people and arranged marriages. We're going to hear those in a particular way that's shaped by our experience and years of history. In our day, these are loaded terms that are connected to a whole host of hot-button issues in our culture. They intersect with topics like racism, critical race theory, systemic racism, social justice, women's rights. These are all things that are swirling around in the air around us and affecting how we're going to come to this text. And so part of what we need to do is be aware of this and as best as we can, be setting some of those questions aside to humbly come to the text to see what it says on its own terms in its own way. Because the temptation that wells up in our own hearts is to come to passages like this, expecting them to prove the point or the conclusion we already have of a position on these issues that are swirling around. And we may actually be very afraid to hear what the text may actually say, because it might mean we need to think more deeply than some of the handles that we attach to some of these bigger issues. But as we consider our present context One of the first things that this passage just demands that we do is consider the word that's translated here as slave. We need to talk about that right up front because it really shapes how we're understanding. Um, When we hear the word slave, 
probably what comes to our minds in one way or another, is shaped by the practice in American history of chattel slavery, where we were buying and selling people as a race, as property within our country. And so what we need to understand from the scriptures right away is that slavery as it took place in our country was a horrific violation of God's law. The passage that we will look at next week, which is connected to this text, but it clearly forbids man-stealing. Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him, listen to the penalty for this type of behavior, shall be put to death. That's how God views the practice that took place within our country. And so what we have to understand as we come to a text like this is whatever this is saying, it doesn't condone the practice of chattel slavery as we think of it in our relatively recent history. And the reality is that if people had obeyed what the Bible says, slavery as we knew it in America would never have existed in that form. And another thing, as we just consider our own context as all adults in the room talking about these things. And children, you can hear how adults, I guess, are supposed to talk about these things, <laughs> hopefully. Um, one of the other things as we consider our context is that we have to grapple with the reality that people in our country have used the Bible and in the name of God, they have used scripture to justify the atrocities that were committed against a whole race of people in a way that God clearly says is unacceptable for any image bearer. And we also have to let it sink in that the Bible was used to justify that kind of mistreatment for people who are also our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we come to a text like this, it gives us pause because we have to understand the weightiness of what we're dealing with when we talk about topics that can be um, such an affront to image bearers of God. And as we've seen that play out in not only our own history, but also the history of the world. Um, And so as we think about the context of, uh, like our context in understanding the term slavery, I think what's helpful, especially as we deal with this in an Old Testament setting, is that when we hear that word that's translated as slave in our versions, it might be helpful to think of it more along the lines of servant, and in particular, indentured servant. You may be familiar with that term, where someone gives up freedoms in return for something. And although it wasn't always practiced well, and there were definitely abuses of it that took place, it's closer in our minds to the dynamics we find when someone enlists themselves in military service, Uh, and how they're giving up freedoms for a time, for a term, with clear expectations. And then also, uh, even the the idea of buying and selling, much more related to what we would see going on with sports teams, uh, even though a lot of times sports players are far more profitable than anyone will be reading about in this context. But it's more those ideas than the ideas of chattel slavery that so often come to our minds. So if it's helpful to you, you can think of the word servant kind of throughout this passage and it will get you in a pretty good place. So that's awareness of 
our own context, right? We just have to come to it humbly acknowledging that we're going to come to this with all these things swirling in our hearts and minds. The second tool, contextual tool, is awareness of their historical context, the historical context that's happening as we come to this passage. And what we need to know most of all is that there is a great distance between our context and their context. It is hard for my kids to understand that life existed without cell phones and the internet. I see them try to grapple with how anyone survived in a world that was so barbaric. And that's just really a difference of like 30 years-ish between when I was born and when they were born. Here we're talking over 3,000 years that separate the world we know from the world they were in. And so just a few factors that relate to that. First of all, individual freedom didn't exist in the way that we understand it, in particular as Americans today. Everyone in that world was a servant of someone. Uh, If you weren't a servant of an up-close master, then ultimately of the king, and even the king is the servant of the deities of that particular place. And so um, individual freedom did not exist in the way we often think of it. Also, they didn't have the same societal safety nets that we are so used to thinking about and having as common practice. In their day, if you were to come upon hard times, sometimes through bad and foolish decisions of your own, but often, many times, because of circumstances beyond your control, a bad year of crops, death of an important family member, a raid by bandits, your livestock gets sick, or you're just born into a poor family, You couldn't just go out and get an entry-level job, receive some assistance, and try and work your way up. We see even in our day with some of these safety nets how difficult that that can be. It was much more so in their day as well. And so their um, societal safety nets are different. And then we could say many more things, but one other that relates to our text is we have to remember that marriages at that time were arranged marriages. Families, and in particular fathers, were primarily involved with these decisions, and money was exchanged during that process. And so, like I said, we could say much more, but this awareness of their historical context gives us, again, a posture of humility as we come and try and understand what the text is saying. And then finally, the third tool is an awareness of the context of biblical revelation, the context of biblical revelation. What this really means is we just have to realize where we are in the Bible's storyline when we come to this passage. And you can see if you have your Bibles open, we're pretty early in the storyline. We are past the ideal of pre-fall creation. We're past Genesis 3, right? So things aren't all as they were supposed to be. And yet we're not yet at the consummation when all things will be as they were truly intended to be. And so we're actually relatively early on in the story of redemption. And and what that means as we think of what's been happening in the story is these people are living in a very pagan world. And actually, they're probably still quite pagan themselves. They've spent 400 years in a pagan land before they were even shaped by God's covenant and by God's law, which is being revealed to them now. And so what this means is as we come to these laws, God is giving case laws, which means he's giving them ways to handle particular situations within a fallen society. 
but it's ways to handle it in a society that is fractured by sin. These are laws that enter into a sinful world. And so what we'll find in these laws is that God is regulating things. He's regulating things like slavery and polygamy. But that doesn't mean that he's actually endorsing these things. We need to consider the whole storyline of Scripture uh, to see how God really feels about slavery, marriage, how we treat others. But here he's putting laws in place to curb these things and to prohibit some of the worst parts and worst abuses of these particular societal systems. And so that is considering the context of a passage like this with just some tools that are available to us. That said, let's take a look together at the content of what these verses are saying. Uh, Let's unpack what God wanted his people to know, the content of these laws. Our passage this morning can really be broken into two sections. First, it deals with male slaves in verses 1 through 6, and then it deals with female slaves in verses 7 through 11. Now, what we need to understand right away is that this is dealing with fellow Israelites. You notice it says when someone takes a Hebrew slave. This isn't talking about uh, laws concerning foreign slaves. Those are given elsewhere in Scripture, and protections are given in those situations as well. But here we're talking about fellow Israelites. And we see right away the limitation on this status of slave. A person is not a slave because of his ethnicity. It was a status someone entered into in essentially a contract. And the longest that this can last in Israel is six years, going free in the seventh year. And that's fitting within this broader sabbatical pattern that was so essential to God as he's showing his people these patterns of work and rest. Um, He even modeled how one would enter into a context like this, on this six-in-one pattern. Now, it says in verse 2 that in the seventh year, he shall go free for nothing. Now, when I hear that, first thing that comes to my mind is that he's going out penniless, right? But what it really means is he's going out without debt. He's owing nothing. Uh, No further payment is needed. The debt that a person would often come into a situation like this having um, has now been canceled by their service. And then in verses 3 and 4, it talks about how marriage is affected by the status of becoming a servant or a slave. And it's pretty clear in verse 3. If he comes in single, he goes out single. If he comes in married, he goes out married. What gets trickier is if his master provides a wife for him. And so what we find is a master could provide a wife for his slave. It could be from his house, or he could make arrangements with another household. And what we find is that the master is acting like the family in making arrangements out of care for his male servant and providing the bride price that would be paid. He's um, taking on the financial responsibility that would come in an arrangement like this. And notice also the agency of the slave in this matter. This male slave has choices about how he would do this, and the options for him are spelled out before he would even enter into a situation like this. The slave's freedom after six years doesn't mean that he now gets to leave with his family that the master has provided for him. They would have contracts of their own, again, being up to the most of six years. 
And so he had some options. He could t- continue to work for that master until they were freed. He could seek to go work elsewhere, maybe for more money, and redeem them more quickly. Or, if it's a really good situation, which is what this passage is trying to move toward, it's, it's actually holding out this ideal situation as what hopefully everyone's striving for, even though it's not always happening. But he could be so filled with love for his master and his wife and children that he decides to stay and become part of his master's household forever. And there's a ceremony that makes that official and clear for both parties that involves piercing the ear. So that's, in summary, what's going on there in verses 1 through 6. These aren't ideal situations as someone finds themselves this destitute that they're entering into these types of care, but you can see the protections and controls that are there throughout. Then verse 7 turns to female slaves. And this is actually building on verses 1 through 6. It kind of starts with the clear principle, and then we're getting into more and more complicated situations as it goes on. And so it's governed by similar conditions, this maximum of six years. You come in married, you leave married. That's still going to apply to to females in this situation. But what these verses seem to be dealing with is this more complicated situation that would take place in that day. When she enters in as a servant or a slave, also with the intention and promise of becoming a wife in that household. And so right away... This gives us pause, doesn't it? We have to realize that what Scripture is talking about is that there would be situations in the world and in that day where a father is so destitute that for him the only way he could seek to ensure his daughter's care is to have her enter into a situation like this, which hopefully has protections in place, but also as a father you would know full well may not go all that great either. And so we pause and we just realize how far we are from Eden and how far we are from the consummation. But that said, there are still surprising protections all throughout this section. When it says in verse 7, she shall not go out as the male servants do. When I hear that, I think, look, she has less options than the male servants do. But in reality, what it's saying is she actually has these other options that are related to this particular situation. Verse 8 says that if he has designated her for himself, so this master has planned to marry her, but something happens where she does not please him, and so something goes wrong where he decides that's not the trajectory he wants to pursue, notice he's not allowed to sell her to a foreign people. This selling her to a foreign people could be a very vindictive, uncaring thing to do. Probably way easier because foreign people would be looking for these kinds of situations all the time. But if she were to be sold to foreign people, she comes out from under these protections that God has given for the people within Israel. So he's not allowed to do that. And notice also This situation, even though she didn't please him and there's something there about it that he doesn't like, it's described as really his fault and problem. He's the one who's breaking faith with her. He's betraying his word of the commitment that he had made to care and provide for her as a wife eventually. But there's provision given for how that can be done. In verse 9, it says, If he was intending for her to marry his son, then she comes under all of the rights and protections 
of a daughter. And so a father can't make some arrangement for his son and then he gets some second-class wife just to do work and for his pleasure. She becomes a daughter to him and assumes those privileges within the house. And then verse 10, if then he takes another wife for himself, um, the reality is she's not allowed to be treated as a second-class wife. He must care for her in exactly the same way, providing food, clothing, marital rights. And so we see these restrictions given around polygamy, which is something that God never held forth as an ideal solution for his people. And in verse 11, it says, if he doesn't give her the proper care, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And again, that's not saying, when I read that first, it sounds like this. This person could make these arrangements. He has this woman in his house. He decides he doesn't think she's all that great and he stops caring for her. And then if that's the case, then she could complain and he sends her away penniless. And so it just sounds horrible, right? Instead, what it is is recourse for if he goes back on his word and ceases to care for her as he has pledged to do, then she is free from all obligations to him. She goes out with her contract fulfilled. She goes out owing nothing. And it's really on him for being the one who went against his word to care for her. And so this would still be a difficult situation, right? A woman coming out from under that care is going to find herself in a difficult place within that society. But what it does is it opens up opportunity for her to find care in her family, in the community of the people of Israel. And the ideal that's kind of held forth out in scripture is ideally she could find a Boaz-like husband who would care enough for her to come into the picture and rescue her from this mistreatment that she has endured. And so those are some of the details of how that passage is working, right? And now that we've explored those, I want us to step back and consider what this passage is saying about how we understand God's heart, God's actions towards people, and how we would be called as New Covenant believers to show his heart for people as well. And so we come to our third point, which is the heart of these laws. One of the things that both the context and the content of this passage, one of the things that it shows us is this top priority on ensuring protection for the most vulnerable in society. You say, Craig, how does it do that? Well, it's interesting. We're moving, aren't we, from the ten words, the ten commandments, where God spells out his moral law, and now we're shifting into case law. And if you have your Bible open, you can look back up at the end of chapter 20. The first case laws that we come to are regarding worship in chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. And so as we shift into how God's people are supposed to live, the first thing that God mentions is worship, how their altars were to be properly constructed, makes sense. What's the very next thing that God talks about? How these people coming from slavery to the Egyptians were to treat their slaves. Slaves were the most vulnerable, the most easily exploited people of that day. They were entering into this arrangement because they had no options. They had little recourse in the world, and especially when it comes to women who found themselves in this position. 
And that is what God chooses to address first. Love God, love neighbor, particular, whatever that is, especially, especially the most vulnerable. And so this tells us something about God's heart. And, and we see it here in shadowy form, right, through these laws, and especially as we come to them and we're trying to parse out what it's actually saying. But God's heart for the vulnerable continues with increasing clarity as biblical revelation continues, as we move along in that story. And especially as you heard in our scripture reading in Galatians 3, Paul speaks of the new covenant church as a place where your ethnicity whether you're slave or free or male or female, none of this affects your status in the church. And instead, all believers have this equality and unity as children of Abraham and heirs together of all of the inheritance of promise. And so we see this status being shaped and elevated. And then the epistles reinforce this with commands that specify that we are called as believers to sacrificially love those who are under our care, under our power, under our authority. And Paul says that the body of Christ, as it has weaker members and stronger members, it's supposed to give special honor to the weaker parts, the more vulnerable parts of the body of Christ. And it also says we're not supposed to be a place that shows favoritism to wealthy or powerful And the reality is that's how the early church was. Observing the church, a a Greek philosopher said that Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. Only slaves, women, and little children. Now as horrific as that quote is of how demeaning it is to image bearers of God, what it does capture for us though is how the church functioned Um, in the early church times. It was known as a place for the vulnerable of society. Why? Why was it known this way? Because of Jesus. It was known to be this way because of our Lord Jesus. Because in him, all the shadowiness, as we go back to Exodus and and try and understand God's heart for the vulnerable, all of those shadows, they fade away as a vapor when we see the crystal clarity of God come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He shows us God's heart for the vulnerable. As we heard about in our Meals with Jesus series, he pursued, protected cared for and saved the vulnerable people who were created in God's image. If we look at the context of Scripture, women's status had not changed much, but the care that he showed them was revolutionary. Religion was still primarily man's business, but when God in the flesh showed up on the scene, all of that changed. It was no longer true. Jesus treated women with dignity, respect, and care. He saw them. He spoke to them. He interacted with them about the things of God. And he moved toward them in their vulnerability, in their suffering. We think of him healing a woman who had experienced the the agony and the ostracism of bleeding for 12 years. We see him not being repulsed or objectifying women who were prostitutes 
and who probably found themselves in that situation to be able to survive in that world. But instead, Jesus saw them. He received their touch. He reassured them of their forgiveness. And he overcame their shame. Women flocked to Jesus. They were drawn to him. They supported him. And they followed him. And it wasn't just women that Jesus went after as the vulnerable, but the disenfranchised, the weak, the poor, the outcasts. He ate and drank and shared meals with them. He spent so much time with them that he was called their friend. He welcomed and blessed even the lowest in society, the little children who were brought to him. And if we consider the teaching of our Lord Jesus, his strongest words, his woes were revealed or reserved for those who in God's name refused to care for the vulnerable. We figured out a way we can use our money and don't have to care for our parents. We can bind millstones around the next, or we can bind um, demands among the, the necks of these little children. And Jesus said, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than causing one of these little ones to stumble. And so Jesus shows us with crystal clarity God's heart about these matters. Are you in a position of vulnerability today? Maybe it's because of your status or standing in society. But maybe it's not even among society's standards. As they look at you, they would say, you have power. But are you overwhelmed and afraid or fragile? Jesus shows us that God's heart moves towards you in your weakness and in your suffering. And the question that Exodus 21 And the rest of scripture really raises for us is this. Do we have the same heart for the vulnerable? And the first way we think about that really is, do we prioritize their care? Is their care a priority to us? Are those who are disenfranchised, easily exploited, abused, Are they at the top of our lists when we plan out our social calendars and our hospitality? Are they at the top of our list when we consider how we're going to use our time, our effort, our resources as believers to affect the lives of other people? When we think about who we need in the church, are they at the priority? Are they the priority or are they at the periphery of our care? as we think about the neighbors that we're called to get to know and to love and to show the love of Jesus, are they are the weak and vulnerable neighbors, ones that we are seeking to know and love who are around us? We may say, well, who are the vulnerable in our particular context? I think that's a great question to ask. I have a few ideas, and there are many more. But just think with me about this as we consider our setting and how this priority of care for the vulnerable reaches us. Who are the people who find themselves in situations with limited options and are easy to be taken advantage of? Single parents who are trying to provide for themselves and their children, 
They're facing overwhelming challenges and often parenting alone or dealing with difficult custody arrangements. The elderly who have reduced income, who have mounting health concerns and who are frequently the target of of scams by society, they're very much seen as vulnerable even as they're dealing with acute loneliness. What about people who find themselves in between jobs? They're underemployed, and maybe they're finding themselves in a job or a career that's being replaced by technology, and so they're being displaced in this. How are we going to care for them? Or immigrants and refugees, people who have newly arrived to this country with various language and cultural barriers, and maybe they're even facing mistreatment because of where they have come from. Persons with disabilities, whether those are physical or mental, which makes holding a job very difficult and living an uh, an independent life much harder than it is for many of us. We think also of widows and widowers, not only dealing with the loss of companionship, but now responsible for what two used to do together. And then we think of children, born and unborn, who can be easily harmed by others. I think this is the beginning of a list of people who are near to the heart of God and people that when we think about what it means to love and to care for others, he says, these are your priority because they matter to me. And as we follow Jesus and we see his priorities, we find he moves us towards these people as well, not away from them, right? And so as as we're thinking about just these applications, what I was just talking about is how the Bible calls us to prioritize care for the most vulnerable. It's prioritizing their care as we think about them. But then I also want to highlight that this text shows us another thing, and that's to prioritize their protection. That we as believers are called to prioritize the protection of the vulnerable among us. One thing that has really struck me as I've been studying these case laws over the last weeks and months (laughs) is the Bible's piercing awareness of the evil that potentially lies in people's hearts and the harm that can flow from that, especially in positions of power and authority. And the Bible is not naive about the harm that that can happen when sinful people find themselves in close proximity with this. And so it puts protections in place to guard against that harm. And so as individual Christians, what that means is we should per- seek to protect the vulnerable who are under our care. As we think as individual Christians, we are people who will be watching out for our older parents. We will be people who are watching out for our children and the dangers that lurk around them. We will be watching out for those among us who have disabilities. And those of us who are citizens of this country, we have an amazing privilege of being able to influence its laws. And what that means is that justice and concern for the weak and the vulnerable, it will be a priority to us as we consider the laws of this land and as we seek to cast our votes. We may have different answers of how to prioritize this, right? But it will be a priority for the people of God 
justice and care for the vulnerable in our land. It will be good for our society. And so we do that as individuals, but then I also just want us to think about prioritizing protection as a church, as we gather together. You know, as we step back and look at the broader church, one of the things that is disheartening to see is how much we have failed to show the biblical wisdom that the Bible holds forth. We as Christians in our churches have often been naive to the harm that can take place as sinners find themselves in relationships like this, especially to the ways that women and children can be treated even in Christian homes and in the church. And so I just want to say this, especially for those who, of you who are newer to us, and then also because I don't think we could ever say it too much. But if you are a woman who's in a position where you're not being properly cared for as a wife, where your husband's power is not being used for you, but it's being used over you, we are committed as a leadership and as a church of being a place of refuge and safety and giving you and providing you with the help and care that you need. Because we see that is God's heart way back in Exodus 21. And it's not only women, but churches have also been naive about the children among them. And the reality is that children in a church are a prime target for those who seek to do harm because we as church Christians are often kind of gullible and trusting and just think that it's okay to bring everyone in and up close. And see, biblical wisdom calls us to be diligent about protecting the vulnerable. And so we continue as leadership and with the children's ministry to examine all of our children's policies and procedures. And we're updating parts of our building to make sure that they are wisely safe for the children who come through these doors. And the reality is, it takes more volunteers to have the right protocols in place. It's less convenient. It's not just like in our homes where we show up and, oh, it's fine, just whatever. They're, they're, it's less convenient but it's showing the wise care of God's heart as we show our children that they are this important to be protected from the harm that can occur. So having God's heart for the vulnerable means that we will seek to be individually and corporately people of godly protection and care. And so the question for us is, with where we are and the particular callings that we have, how do we do this both in the church and in our world? Well, as we close, the question on my mind as I come to this part of the sermon is how in the world can we do this? It's a high calling. And it goes against many of the impulses of our hearts of self-centeredness and overlooking hard things, hard and messy things. And so the question we find is what motivates this kind of care and protection among the people of God? And what we find is that part of the reasons that in Exodus 21, the second thing God mentions is how slaves are important to him. It's made explicit in what's really a parallel passage when these are repeated later in Deuteronomy. Hear the words of Deuteronomy 15.15 when it's talking about the very same things. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt 
and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. You see, their actions toward the weak and the vulnerable were motivated by an awareness of who they were when God came to them and redeemed them with a mighty arm. And so also for us. We weren't slaves in Egypt, but we were slaves to sin and under the rule of Satan himself. And the wonder of the gospel is that the Lord our God has redeemed us. And think of how he did that. The Lord Jesus Christ himself came as a servant. He shared in the lowliness of a slave. And he showed us the care and protection of a master like we had never known. A love that our hearts longed for and just hoped could actually be true. And Jesus, the servant of the Lord, made a way for us to become a part of this master's household forever. He did so not through the piercing of his ear, but through the piercing of his hands, his feet, his side, paying with his life the price for our redemption and freeing us from all that enslaved us and forgiving us even for the times that we have not protected or cared, but when we have done great harm. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And now through faith in him, we become joined to him as his bride and a part of God's family. Not for forced labor, but freed for worship with all of the rights and privileges of the highest in that society, the privileges of sons. We are now heirs together of all that our older brother, Jesus Christ, has earned for us. That kind of love, that kind of redemption, that stooping and service for us, it changes who we are, doesn't it? It changes how we view the vulnerable. And so as we follow our Lord Jesus, now as servants to the weak and the hurting, he uses us to show them that care and love of a kind of master that they've always hoped could really exist. And we get to extend to them the invitation to become a part of his household forever because the Father himself loves us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at your wisdom. We're amazed at your heart. We're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us because we could never fathom these things on our own. And Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for how you came in the flesh as a servant to show us with crystal clarity the love of the Father for us and to demonstrate that on the cross and to send your spirit so that now we could see it, believe it, and also show it as he works in us to make us more like our precious Lord Jesus. We thank you for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray.